0: I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. As the new school year begins in the substantial shadow of the COVID-19 pandemic, our students face challenges that go beyond making friends and making up for lost time in the classroom, beyond virtual Zoom teaching and hybrid learning. After a summer of protests against systemic racism and police brutality, amid calls for a racial reckoning, many students, parents, and educators are engaging in conversations about race, equality, and opportunity, and they may even find themselves discussing what makes some people vulnerable to COVID, to violence, and what makes others resilient. That's just part of what makes today's conversation with Margaret Beale Spencer so timely. Because human vulnerability, resilience, and context are concepts that Professor Spencer has spent her career studying and addressing. Some background. Professor Spencer is the Marshall Field IV Professor of Urban Education in the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. Her career spans more than 30 years, during which she has authored well over 100 published articles and chapters. In fact, we found our conversation with Dr. Spencer so meaningful, we're bringing it to you in two parts. This first part covers her personal history and the kinds of resources and support that not only fueled her resiliency, but informed her work and views. Before we begin, though, I want to tell you about another podcast called Notes from the Backpack. It's brought to you by National PTA and hosted by Helen Westmoreland and Lawanda Tony. Helen heads PTA's Center for Family Engagement and has a two-year-old daughter. Lawanda is PTA's Director of Communications and has a seven-year-old son. Together, in each episode of Notes from the Backpack, they invite an expert to the show and address a topic related to children's learning, development, and success in and out of school. This season, they're tackling questions we need to know the answers to, including... How do I choose online resources that will actually support my kids during school closures? How can I help my child get the assistance they need to thrive right now? And how do I talk with my kids about some of the bigger issues of 2020, like racial justice and the upcoming election? Notes from the Backpack has listeners in every state and in more than 55 countries. If you're not already listening, you should be. Check out Notes from the Backpack wherever you listen to podcasts, or at notesfromthebackpack.com. And one more item. If you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Margaret Beale Spencer. Professor Spencer, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate your time.
1: My pleasure, Chris. I very much appreciated the invitation uh, to share.
0: Among the many areas that I want to discuss with you are three topics that I know are central to your work, uh, human vulnerability, resiliency, and the power of context. And to start to understand them, um, I thought we should start with you. How did you get here? I assume that your path was not a straight line. Most of ours is not.
1: Well, that is correct. Uh, You're absolutely right. I am very appreciative of um, my history. Um, It was a modest history in terms of uh, resources, uh, but it was an enriched history in terms of the supports that I experienced and the opportunity to understand who I am through the eyes of other people, and most notably, my mother. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, My parents divorced uh, when I was about six, uh, but she really became a single parent of three little girls uh, by the time I was four years old. But by that time, you know, her stories and my other relatives' stories had become incredibly important to me. My um, mother uh, was the middle of five children. She had two older sisters and two younger brothers. Her father was the first uh, non-military black deep-sea diver off of uh, the Delaware River in Philadelphia. Hmm. And so that provided uh her family with a little prestige and status because it was an unusual role for a black man to have at that time. Um you know we're talking about you know the early turn of the 20th century. He you know would have on this huge you know suit uh with the large um uh with I a mean, large heavy metal suit and yes, uh people yes. would have pictures of him And, you know, black barbershops around the city, they would, you know, write articles about him. Well, when my mother was 13 years old, her mother and her mother's sister, that's very important, who they were very close, they both died of TB, Mm. tuberculosis. My mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, uh, passed as well as her sister. And then one month later, in fact, Mother's Day morning, my mother's father had been called to work to, you know, go down into Delaware and to do whatever. Well, when they brought him up, he had he had expired. He was dead. And so Mm. that left literally within a one month period. My mother and her four siblings orphaned. And because they you know had been living in philadelphia you know uh for for years um and my mother's and my mother's maternal aunt had also died with her mother, they really had no supports she was like i said she would have been thirteen years old obviously as the as a girl as a as a young girl at that age it was it was traumatic. But they pulled together as a family, and they managed. And my mother, you know, later she got married to my father, and uh, he was one of the uh, black men during that period who were uh, going into uh, Second World War uh, commitments. And it was pretty traumatic. And so I think today we would have called his reaction to it all more like PTSD, if anything. But it was difficult when he came home bottom line is that they divorced, but not before my mother had the three of us and I was the youngest of three girls. Hearing about these stories of my mother's early uh, development, hearing the stories uh, from my father's two brothers, and uh, he was the oldest of three sons, and then my mother's two younger brothers, hearing their stories about their experiences as black men in this country's uh, service. Um, was really enlightening to me. And so for me, in many ways, uh, the concept of human vulnerability, and I define vulnerability as part of our human identity, that is being aware of protective factors and assets, as well as risk factors and challenges, everyday challenges as you navigate life. So in many ways, even though obviously as a child I wasn't aware of such concepts, they certainly were a part of my psyche. And so for me, that was the beginning of an awareness that, especially for children, you know, their human vulnerability and their the balance between their needs versus their supports was a very, very uh, critical balance or in balanced state, and that it was something that all humans, you know, are uh, burdened by. We're all human and we're all vulnerable. As we navigate space and time, we always need this balance uh, between the resources or the assets and given the risks, both the normative risks, and like my mother's, the non-normative risks and challenge of losing both your parents. So in many ways, Chris, I think I've always been uh, sort of um primed, if you will, to understand the fact of human vulnerability.
0: It it almost feels like you started learning about this um some twenty-ish years perhaps before you were born, when your mother was uh thirteen and went through the series of events you just described that are as uh an extraordinary uh, a blow that any child and any uh five five kid family um could possibly have to sustain um I, i'm also taken by one of the things that you said at the at the very start um which was and i'm paraphrasing here that that your own upbringing um that was was of limited resources but deep support and really differentiating. So many of us would think, well, to be able to live through, you know, to, to be able to make it, to be able to deal with human vulnerability, um, well, one needs deep resources. One needs a, a wide range of resources. H- how do you think about that balance between the need for resources and maybe how you define resources versus support?
1: Both occur together. The challenge or the risk for for me and my sisters, given a mother who was doing all this on her own, uh, was that without her own mother and father's support, right because grandparents matter was uh, a need to always acknowledge and recognize what she brought, for example, my mother was an avid reader, you know she loved to read, you know she loved to do things she my mother she could have been an engineer. She could fix anything. She understood electricity and physics at a level that I did not, I'm sure, ever, even in college, but she understand understood it all and shared it with us. My mother, because she read to us all the time, um, and even though I was the youngest, because my sisters then were in school because they were older, um, I taught myself to read when I was three. Because the model that I always had was my mother reading to us and um, uh, uncles and aunts talking to us and expecting us, you know, to share our perspective and our way of thinking about whatever. Those were supports. Those were strong supports and they were strong models. So even though on the one hand there were challenges as, you know, risks, et cetera, but there were also these supports. And I believe that is why I approach my work in the way I do, because there are so many strengths, sources of support uh, that are a part of young people's experience that somehow never see um, the light of day in our social science. And it becomes really quite problematic because that means that objectively, from the outside, Social scientists might see what they perceive as challenges, as risk factors, as problems, but because they don't walk in the moccasins of other people, families, communities, they don't recognize supports. They don't recognize supports and, um, and um, um, resources uh, because they only see supports economically it's like the experiences of people of color in this country and my bottom line view of course is that they saw bringing here africans in the in the in the bowels of ships as only an economic benefit and never the transport of humans and for me that is a fundamental Uh, challenge to social science in this country, and I would say developmental science in particular, is that if you don't see people's humanity, you don't treat them in a humane manner. You don't have policies that are defined in the Constitution for we, the people, being inclusive of the lives of individuals. Uh, who are different in terms of race, ethnicity, uh, port of entry, etc, so they don't see the humanity they see only only the pr- only problems they see only differences in performance outcomes. they don't understand the processes of human development in contexts of families with particular histories um, that suggest strengths because they don't see them as humans and don't see them as having strengths. They see them only as problems. And I really believe that's a huge problem generally. I really think that Condoleezza Rice, in, her, in a CBS interview, uh, she talks about this problem, and she sort of sees it, sees it as uh, one of America's uh, defect Because America does not, this constitution and how it's lived every day for all citizens, does not include people of color as part of the we, the people. And it continues into the current period.
0: How are we in this current period? How are we seeing humanity as a society?
1: I believe we continue to see humanity in a very limited way. And that humanity, if you will, perspective is inclusive of people who are white and privileged without acknowledging same. The way I like to describe the dilemma is that we look at people only in terms of uh, what they produce, in terms of in the science that means outcomes. If we're talking about achievement, if we're talking about family or community, um, community wealth, we think about differences only in terms of those differences without acknowledging that the deck is always stacked against people who are not white. But there is no incentivizing of that, in essence, acknowledged reality. That's sort of what uh, Condoleezza calls this mark of uh, this uh, birth defect know, this country's birth was based upon those assumptions, if you will, that's never been acknowledged so that you see these differences and you blame the victim for the underperformance without engaging in self-interrogation and the history of injustices that is these United States of America in its constitution, um, you know, proffering, if you will certain perspectives about we, the people, when we, the people, really means white people. And that's something that remains under-interrogated, if interrogated at all. And I think that is the major problem that we are still settled with. But today is an opportunity, because what COVID-19 has done is to demonstrate for us that if you have this 400 years of inequality, of inequities in terms of how difference is treated and how certain individuals are are supported and are privileged when you have something like covid-19 covid-19 is a risk and a challenge for everyone for all humans but for certain communities it's even more challenging so when you look at the differentials in terms of race ethnicity and individuals who are succumbing, if you will, in terms of death uh, due to COVID 19, it also represents not just the current pandemic, it represents a history of inequality, a history of risk and challenge, which has generally been unacknowledged. And why it becomes part of the nation's psyche is because when you find those differences in outcomes, you don't acknowledge. The history of privilege, the inequality that goes along with the privatization, if you will, of all things white. You simply look at the differences and you say, well, this group over here is not performing very well due to something about them, their deficiencies, not the deficiency in the practice of we the people.
0: You said that you see our times as an opportunity. Um, what's the opportunity, but maybe more specifically, what needs to happen to capture the opportunity?
1: I think white people in this country um, really need to engage in um, some real candid self-interrogation. And I really think that it may be uh, that white people need to help white people, those who are already, if you will, as youngsters call it, woke or aware of the inequalities that have existed in this country for the uh, past uh, several hundred years, uh, need to help other white people. Um, I think it's really important because I think that's a first step. Mm. Asking ones you know, as a asking one's black friends to do this work, I don't think is appropriate because we don't know what happens in your houses. We, as black people, we don't know how issues of inequality are modeled and communicated. Now, let me explain to you why I say that. Yes, please. Because I always cared about the condition of kids, I planned to be a pediatrician. And so my undergraduate program of study was in pharmacy because I thought I could get all the pre-med courses, but I'd also know something about about drug chemistry. So I'd be one up, if you will, in terms Mm -hmm. of my medical studies. But I ended up, uh changing because i really felt as if you know it being a, being the only black woman in a in a class entire class and being being the only black be um uh, woman being one of three black students and uh being one of five black uh, one of five women I decided that I didn't want to go to medical school and deal with those gender and race differences again for another four years. And I needed to think about what I wanted to do, but I just did not want to have that experience again. So I ended up um, taking a couple of courses in psychology because I had in five years of study, I not had any non-math or science courses, courses except for one English class and one sociology class in five <laughs> years of programming. And so I decided to take a couple of courses. I took one psychology 101 and the second one was a research methods class. And I stumbled into psychology and I found it fascinating. Mm. And so I um, ended up being invited into the PhD program I only had time for a master's because my husband was getting his Ph.D. very quickly. And so I did a, a thesis uh, looking at uh, children's racial attitudes, preferences. Um, this These were three, four and five year olds. What was amazing to me, Chris, it was a really a uh, a, a re um, a reworking Uh, with a few changes, of Kenneth and Mamie Clark's work on children's racial attitudes. And so I had, you know, black and white stimuli of children in different play contexts. These were, you know, boards that were uh, developed by an artist. So I had these identical children portrayed on these boards. And I would ask my preschool children a question such as, okay, you know, here are two children playing which one is the nice child, the smart child, the bad child, the ugly child, you know, much more attitudinal uh, uh, questions. What was amazing to me coming into this field new was that the children answered the questions with so much clarity and they looked at me like I was a dummy for asking them the question. (laughs) And generally, 95% of the time, Uh, The children responded that, of course, the black child, uh, independent of gender, was the ugly child, the bad child, the dumb child or whatever. But most importantly, they were answering the question with a certainty that was amazing. I and I redid this study, in fact, most recently uh, for CNN We're talking about decades later, and the pattern was very similar. The children learned very early that all things dark are devalued and all things light are good and to be valued. And so because of the certainty of the responses, these are just nice, normal kids, I recognize that it was the context. That formally and informally, in myriad ways, that young children, young children were, you know, growing up, believing these clear messages as a function of race, color. And so what I'm trying to share here is that I don't think because white folks don't know what happens in black homes in terms of unexpected strengths, right, that I shared that my mother's family had even though there were these difficulties certainly the experiences that i had and many other people of color that's they are not those experiences are not really known when it comes to science conducted by um white researchers they don't know the strengths so when we do our science we look only for the problems they don't look for the strengths but given hmm. your question in terms of what do we do I think there's also significant variation in the white community. And so there are white people from families who are incredibly sensitive that whatever the source of their shared humanity beliefs um, might be, they have those beliefs. And I think they know more about what happens in the families, how messages are communicated. And I think before we can talk, generally speaking, between the races, we need to talk with each other within a racial context in order to figure out what are the similar similarities and differences that result in variations among white people. And certainly, you know, we've had to deal with these issues for a long time in terms of consciousness of inequality. We've dealt with these issues and are dealing with them in terms of communities of color. But I think before we begin talking across racial and group lines, for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, that within communities, people need to help each other deal with these issues of invisibility of the humanity of others who are not white. Because I think this view uh, that humanity is inclusive only for whites, you know, um, is not acknowledged, is not interrogated, but clearly I think it is a part of who we are as citizens in this country today. And it needs to be addressed, interrogated, and some recovery. Uh, But it's going to take resources, I think, first within before going between to ask of others, what should I do or who am I? I think others who share at least some history uh, should have that task it has to happen.
0: You know, we we spoke a moment ago about your, about the optimism that I'm hearing from you. Um, And and yet, I'm struck, you did that uh, thesis research on intrinsic racial bias. um, And you just uh, discussed some of those conclusions. And you did that, however, many years ago, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years ago, that that work was done
1: first i did it then and i've done it since then but in different, more sophisticated ways but go right ahead chris mm-hmm.
0: okay so the, but the but if i'm listening if i'm hearing you correctly the outcomes that you're seeing from that research and the ability to see humanity um it sounds like you have gotten um let's say very challenging reactions each step along the way the children that you talked with in your thesis research found that dark children, that meant bad, that that had negative outcomes. And it sounds like you have replicated that research through the years. So what does that say to you? How do you stay optimistic if you have seen the same thing in your research over five, 10, 20, 40 years?
1: Well, that's why I said that, um, it really requires, you know, an interrogation and acknowledgement uh, that, that people have functioned uh, with a very uh, exclusive view of humanity. Uh, that so we haven't
0: had that conversation, I guess. You would not feel that we have in a satisfying way as a society, as a country, as, as, as neighborhoods, as neighbors, had those conversations.
1: That is correct.
0: Why are they are are they too hard? Are they too hard to start? Um, do we uh, you know? I, I feel like the questions get asked. The the problems are evident. The, the 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 divides are evident. The the challenges are evident. Why is it so darn hard to have the conversation?
1: Well, my view is that it may be hard because if we have a sense of self in terms of an identity that is based upon a viewpoint. That everything that I earn, i.e. my uh, elevated status in society, is all due to my own efforts, my own brilliance, my Mm -hmm. own exceptionality. And to cope with the possibility that your status has been scaffolded historically over a 400-year period on the backs of others and never been acknowledged as such, uh, that's pretty uncomfortable. I mean, the possibility that maybe, you know, you would not be where you are today if you had been functioning on a level playing field with others. That's a new identity that probably is very uncomfortable uh, to come to grips with. Uh, I mean, I mean, when you think about it, no, every single um, walk of life that people are on, every navigated space, you have that issue to deal with, but you don't know where to start. When you think about uh, the uh, majority of uh, teachers in urban settings, are still white teachers. And we don't want to deal with these issues, which means that they're left much more unconscious. And so if you see behavior in a classroom, say, for example, for um, um, black boys in particular, but black girls are not far behind in terms of pathologizing them. And you see two kids engaged in particular behavior and one's a black boy and one's a, a white boy. You see yes. that boys a black boys behavior is very problematic you might see the white boy as showing some knuckleheaded silly behavior like your nephew johnny but that black boys behavior you see very differently and that's if you're lucky lucky enough to understand and feel some dissonance the problem for me is that too often there is no dissonance there is no consciousness that in fact that uh, that um, implicit bias is really going on, and that's why I'm saying that within the community, you know, of um, of white professionals and everyday people, there needs to be these discussions um, because you see them more than I would, and I think they that the support is there as well uh, because without that, it's not going to happen because it is uncomfortable to have to question the self, to have to question, if you will, one status that you think that you've earned versus a status that you inherited because of structured inequality experienced across generations.
0: That was part one of my conversation with Margaret Beale Spencer. In part two, we'll dive deeper into her renowned research and hear her ideas for addressing racism. For now, though, my thanks to Professor Spencer for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.